Welcome to the 28th episode of the National University of Singapore Middle East Institute podcast series, Boots of the Ground, Security in Transition from the Middle East and Beyond. In this series, we look at the future of warfare. We will see uniformed soldier or boots on the ground replaced by private military companies, autonomous weapon system and cyber weapons. Having discussed previously the future of AI in cybersecurity with Omri Lavi, uh, we are looking today to go deeper into the future of cyber warfare and cyber intelligence. I'm your host, Alessandro Arduino, and I'm extremely excited to have with us today on BOTG, Roy Zur. Roy is a cyber intelligence expert, the founder and CEO of several cyber companies, including Cybin, a cyber education company. Mr. Zur has more than 15 years of experience in cybersecurity and intelligence operation from the Israeli Defense Force, the very famous one, Unit 8200. He has developed cyber education program and technological solution for company, education institution, and government agency worldwide. Thank you for taking your time to be with us today, Roy. And especially thank you for making sense of the development of cybersecurity and how to train the future generation of cyber expert. Thank you. It's a really great pleasure to be here, and I'm excited to um, be part of this amazing podcast. Thank you again. So let me start. Israel is well known all over the world, being called the startup nation. And you transitioned from Unit 8200 to a successful career in the private sector. So how, uh, in your opinion, your personal experience in Unit A200 has conditioned your future career as a businessman? And what are, in a nutshell, the critical lessons that you learned? The floor is yours, Roy. I think that one of the unique things about the Israeli Defense Forces and specifically the intelligence units, and, and Unit A200 is one of the biggest and most significant units there, is the fact that from a very young age, you get significant responsibility. So significant that in the age of 20 or 21, I was already doing things that maybe only now I'm starting to do again. I found myself in a very young age, um, 21, managing hundreds of people in a very complex environment. I was sent to the US for bilateral discussions with other peers of intelligence forces that were twice my age. And that was something that put me in a position that forced me to grow up very fast and to take a lot of responsibility very fast. And I think that sometimes we underestimate what young people, um, whenever they are giving a, a very big mission, can do in a very short, uh, very short time. So this is one thing that I learned from the unit. And also specifically in the context of cybersecurity and cyber intelligence, the unit, of course, opened the world for me to see cyber warfare from within, to identify the, the challenges and to learn the skills. And I did it, as like to, we like to say, hands-on, not necessarily with um, academic approach. I think uh, it recalls quite an ample discussion that we had with Omri Lavi in uh, hands-on approach versus academic one. Yes. But in this respect, uh, uh, there are two things that now I think from your first answer stem out. One is very important, the young age part. Uh, 
And I'm sure also the attitude to risk taking at a young mm -hmm. age is quite different from the same risk that you can uh, uh, look at now. And, and another part is that uh, this, uh, let's call uh, a 200 model is going to be a model that you can uh, apply outside Israel that other country or other business entity can try to duplicate or is just something that uh, is just stemming out uh, from Israel. As most Israeli startup, uh, they tend to emerge from unit A200. And also uh, as you as a former intelli cyber intelligence mayor, uh, you have been trained to groom talent in your organization. So let's yes. say in a nutshell, my question is, uh, uh, how uh, cyber intelligence formation uh, is going to shape uh, future in business and how, if it's possible to other country, uh, to manage to do the same as Israel did. So, so cyber intelligence and, and cybersecurity are going to become an essential part of every digital initiative and, uh, and, and every, every company that deals with data, which um, it's becoming more and more every company. Uh, you know, even low tech companies are now dealing with um, with many data or um, system oriented or you know, uh, online challenges. So I'm putting this aside, I'm assuming that the, 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 the future, we also the present, but the future for sure will be much more affected by cyber intelligence and cybersecurity. Now, specifically, there are a lot of different things that Unit A200 or the Israeli approach has that some of them cannot be necessarily replicated due to culture. By the way, it's not necessarily a good or a bad thing. There are some negative aspects of the, of the culture. Um, and th this is something that, you know, when you replicate something, sometimes you even replicate the bad stuff, the bad thing. So I'm not, I, I don't think that the Israeli culture necessarily is the key. I think one of the key aspects it can maybe implemented in other countries is the zero to hero approach. And it's directly connected to the, to the young age. And I'll explain in general, my approach, and maybe that's the approach of the unit as well, is that we can actually take people from diverse backgrounds, from non-traditional backgrounds, but we identify their aptitude and their attitude and their motivation. Um, and once we identify their potential, we actually invest in them in, um, let's say, training them or bringing them to the level we, uh, we want. And I think that this is something unique about Israel that is very open for an Israeli business culture. That is very, and, and, and it comes from the military because in the military, we get 18 year olds straight out of high school. We don't have the privilege to, um, um, you know, we don't have the privilege to get them well-educated with degrees. And in a matter of months, we need to position them in the most sophisticated and challenging places in the unit. So we have to find ways to accelerate their um, learning processes. And I think that if we will be open um, to do this also, and we are in Israel, but if we will be open to do it globally, to find people based on their potential and then invest in their education, then we can actually find out that there is a lot more talent out there than, uh, than, what, than what we think you know, and, and, and this, will be, this will allow us and our companies to grow much faster and will bring people with a lot more, I would say, entrepreneurial, uh, enter, more entrepreneurs to this, uh, to this situation. 
Now I like to move our conversation from the business part to the defense part. You correctly mentioned that low tech is also affected. I mean, cybersecurity, it affects all the spectrum, not only the high technological part, but in especially in the latest decade, there's been a lot of talk about cyber warfare uh, with some highlight talking about, let's say, cyber Armageddon or even a cyber Pearl Harbor. This has been a constant trope in the military and defense circle for a really long time. But uh, recently, uh, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we didn't see this kind of cyber attack happening. There was no cyber Armageddon, no cyber Pearl Harbor. And uh, everybody were expecting brazen attack on power grid and so on. It didn't happen. So my question is, are we overestimating the physical impact of the damage coming from the cybersphere? I don't think we are overestimating the potential. I think that like many different aspects in, in war, you know, it's, it's kind of like we say, well, nuclear war is a disaster, but look, it doesn't happen. So, you know, so nuclear is okay. Nuclear weapon is okay. I think that um, the potential of a global cyber warfare or even a local cyber warfare that um, you know everyone remove removes their gloves and, and actually using all the cyber warfare weapon available at their disposal hitting critical critical infrastructure water water power systems um, weapon systems transportation system i think it's definitely a doomsday scenario or an Armageddon scenario. Now, I think that the situation is, of course, there is uh, offense and defense. And, and as, as we see this potential effect in many countries, of course, and that's including countries like Ukraine, and that's including countries like Singapore are investing heavily in their security. So I think that one of the reasons we see less of this um, uh, maybe, or we don't see yet the Armageddon case is first because we have this um, situation of defense and offense going on and, and both sides on, on, of the world or both sides in every conflict are of course investing a lot in that. Uh, I think we should not be, I think we, we are not too cautious. I think we should be as, as cautious as possible and we should invest as much as possible in preventing this situation because this can dramatically change our way of life. So I don't think we are overestimating but you know Hollywood and and the the movie uh, the, the movie um, industry is always um, presenting the the worst case scenarios. Hopefully, we will not be in that scenario, but we can know for sure. So we need to prepare. A worst case scenario, but in a very cool way. So having <laughs> yes. said that, uh, here in BOTG. Uh, most of the time we are looking at the role of mercenaries. And it's quite interesting uh, because uh, I'm sure from our audience now there will be the question, but we are talking about cybersecurity and uh, why we need to talk about mercenary. But recently the, the United Nations uh, has been looking with a lot of attention uh, on cyber mercenary. Trying to define cyber mercenary is a very daunting task for a very simple fact that uh, everybody know what a mercenary is, nobody agrees on a perfect definition. And for decades, the UN, especially the Working Group on Mercenary Activity, have been trying to do that. Uh, and especially, of course, the UN is focusing on the human right impact that cyber mercenary 
could cause on civilian during conflict, uh, and especially even during uh, peacetime. So the UN Working Group on Mercenary, as I said, uh, look uh, at uh, activities, companies, or even individuals that use war-grade cyber weapon to the bidding for a foreign power, non-state actor, and as also happen for criminal and uh, terrorist organization. And they try to define them as cyber mercenary. So now I'm asking you a question that uh, it's based on your previous life as a lawyer. As if I recall correct from your bio, you are also a lawyer. Uh, yes. In your opinion, what uh, differentiate cybersecurity company from cyber mercenary, especially what kind of suggestion you can offer to international body attempting to regulate this industry? Uh, let me rephrase it in a nutshell. Can we say that an individual, a group, or a company in a cyberspace is a mercenary and why? I think it's a very, very interesting question. Um, and, and it's a complex answer. I would say this. First, I think we need to, in cybersecurity, to differentiate or kind of like understanding the differences between um, defense-oriented cybersecurity companies to offense-oriented cybersecurity companies. And I think that most companies in the industry are developing mostly defensive tools. Defensive, not even as a weapon, but more as a, think about it as a wall or as a guard or as a monitor or, you know, so it's, it's almost like saying that a company that develops uh, fences or a company that develops walls would be considered as mercenary if these walls or fences are being, you know, used to protect uh, a, specific, a specific territory. I don't think that from the defensive side, um, you could define, in my point of view, of course, you could define these companies as mercenaries um, because they're they are actually in, in a way they're even contributing to to uh, to peace. You know, I'm not necessarily to world peace, but they actually con you know, contributing to lowering crime and minimizing the damage from attacks. And and I think that the, the, the defense companies I don't see them as mercenaries. Regarding companies that develop offensive tools in cybersecurity or offer services for cybersecurity attacks, I think that's where it becomes a bit more complicated. I believe that if you are an individual or a company that you offer your services or your tools as a weapon to companies or regions in conflict, and there are companies that do that, and there are individuals that do that, that offer their services, then I believe that, um, that that may be yes to your question. Maybe in that case, if I'm an individual or a group of individuals or a company that offer attack services or attack tools to companies, to sorry, to countries or organizations or regions in conflict, then it, it, it may be the fact that yes, maybe I am, uh, I could, could be considered as a mercenary. The question is if I'm developing other tools and these tools are being weaponized by others, and I didn't have the intention of these tools to be weaponized. I'm not sure I could be defined as a mercenary because you know a lot of com companies in different industries develop things that later are weaponized. I'm not talking about weapon. I'm talking about you know you can take metals or you can take uh, specific chemicals that you develop for uh, one purpose and others are using it for military purposes. So I think I would, as a lawyer, I would focus on the intention. I would focus on what is the purpose of the activity. And if the purpose of the activity is to develop a specific or to provide a specific solution or a product that um, is directly designed to be used as a weapon, then 
the, the answer would be yes. In other cases, I think that, um, that that's a more complicated situation. No, the intention part uh, is very fascinating because it's one of the areas that has been researched mostly from a legal standpoint on mercenary, especially in the post-African uh, uh, conflict uh, and uh, recently, more recently in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, but then unfortunately, the gray area that is typical that surround mercenary activity, uh, as you mentioned, the uh, passive stance and active stance. But then there is something in the middle. Uh, that it can be a proactive stance, preemptive one. So this is the one that creates more issue. I recall an example, uh, uh, a real one, not the one in the cybersphere, then it was just a company, as you mentioned, uh, defending a wall in Baghdad green zone. And every morning they were shelled by mortar, by insurgent. Mm -hmm. uh, Gurkha that were defending that area one day in the morning, nobody could find them. And then they came back later on with a mortar on their shoulder. So they prepare a trap. There was a preemptive strike to avoid getting shot again. But then we are talking is still passive stance and so on. So this creates more, even in the cybersphere, compelling issue. But now I, I want to move up in discussing more the part uh, on offense than defense. So in, in the cyberspace, attackers move at lightning speed. They cross multiple national border in a matter of seconds. And uh, this uh, is a very huge challenge for country, uh, especially to address uh, where the threat comes from and to attribute mm. this uh, issue. So pinpointing uh, the attribution of a cyber attack uh, is uh, a very daunting problem. And in the future, not so far, this number of attack, even if we don't see an Armageddon as mentioned before, is going to increase. So in your opinion, are we going to say and to witness a cyber attack that is going to be a casus belli? Yeah, I think for sure. I mean, in my point of view, um, think about a situation, and it's already, by the way, happening between different countries, even if I'm looking at the situation between Israel and Iran. Um, I think there is an ongoing, you know, I can't address too much of this, but I think there is an ongoing uh, conflict, cyber, cyber conflict uh, and cyber attacks happening in the background. Some of it is also leaking to the physical space. So it's not yet a, a, a war, um, but I think that in a specific situation, definitely if one country um, or one organization that is government led, hit another country's uh, critical infrastructure or cause a significant damage, it, uh, can, it can definitely be um, kind of like Casus Valley or, or kind of like the, what, what will trigger a war between, between these countries. And the thing is, is exactly the, the attribution case because the, the cyberspace, and, and this, is a, this is an example I like to give sometimes to, to, uh, to students or even in the military uh, is about attribution because Sometimes the fact that things can be hidden or it's not easy to attribute it to, to a specific country or a specific organization can actually, in this case, prevent a war. And I'll explain. Let's say right now there is a specific attack in, uh, in a specific country. Let's say Israel is an example, okay? Something happens here and there is attack in the streets of Israel, not, not a formal attack of another country. And a few people are getting hit. Um, and the intelligence forces of Israel know that there is another country behind it, but it's not known to the public. It's, um, it's, it's almost, it's very hard to attribute it to a specific country, although the intelligence forces know it. 
In this case, the chances of Israel will start a war against this other country, even though people died and an attack happened, are very limited. On the other hand, if a, an airplane or like a, a, a war, uh, like a specific tool, weapon of this country will get into the, um, you know, into the um, territory of Israel and will fire a weapon in Israel, nothing will happen but this weapon in Israel and then go back to their country then most likely this will trigger a war because it's easily can be can easily be attributed to this country and it's an it's a it's a very um, public and violent act of war so i think that what the cyber warfare allows countries is to manage a war that is hidden that's kind of like the rules is that that be contained in a way and I think that that's why a lot of time there is actually an active war going on in the cyberspace and you still don't call it a war. You still say that there was no Casas Valley that happened here and this triggered the war. But it's just a matter of time in my point of view. In my point of view, once cyber attacks will influence more and more the physical space, for example, shutting down a full system of transportation, etc., then we'll start seeing countries also retaliate in the, in the physical space. So that's um, that's that's how I see it. Oh, it's very interesting uh, your answer because it's quite similar to answer of the same question that I asked to an expert on drone warfare a while ago. Mm. If an unmanned aerial vehicle that you are not able to attribute where it's coming from, who is the guy behind the remote controller is going to hit another country, then it will start a war. And the answer was quite similar to your, is that was not the case probably in the future when this uh, weapon system become more sophisticated. There are swarm system controlled by AI and so on. But it also, in my opinion, um, looking uh, at data, both on cyber attack and both on drone strike, uh, one thing that I'm quite sure is that increase the propensity of aggression. Because uh, there is this perception that drone uh, uh, don't create a body bag coming back home, while cyber attack is something that is neutral, is online. But then, as you mentioned, uh, is going to increase to have uh, effect on the physical world, especially we see cyber attack on hospital, cyber attack on power grid, and, and so on. So that definitely something that we need to, to look at uh, uh, in terms of law regulation, but also in terms of ethical approach. To, to this issue. Uh, but then again, uh, we are talking with drone and with cyber attack or something that it looks like all controlled by machine, not by human, but human are still at the center of this. And yes. all over the world, there is a race to find the right person the right talent. Uh, and as you mentioned, from a 200 uh, to your company, also in nurturing the talent uh, is important and uh, is very strategical issue. And uh, looking at area, especially coming back from the Middle East to area more near to us like Singapore, uh, the first question is that here in Singapore, digital financial market protection is critical. And everyone is looking at cyber talent, but uh, the pool of talent is shrinking by the day. So as you cope with this recruiting problem, it's, it's, a, it's a great question, and it, it's also directly connected to what I've been doing in the past 15-plus um, years, first in the military, then in the, uh, in the industry today. And, you know, from looking at my, my company was Cybent, now we joined forces with another company recently, and now we are called Thrive or Thrive DX, Digital Transformation. 
the focus is exactly about how we bring more talent into the talent pool. Because right now, all the companies and organizations and government agencies are fighting or kind of like competing on the same talent pool. But there is a huge talent shortage out there. The estimation is between 3.5 million to 4 million people missing in the market right now. And if you think about the traditional education process, it takes three, five, seven, depends how many years uh, of, of different degrees to generate talent. And even this, most degrees, technological degrees are not directly around cybersecurity. So you take people that studied uh, computer science and you add like another cybersecurity course, but they didn't do a lot of cybersecurity. And the, the, the amount of degrees and in, in, in kind of like cybersecurity master degrees are, are pretty limited versus the millions that are missing. So I think the answer in that case is that we have to find creative ways to generate talent in a very accelerated or in a significantly much more accelerated way than we do it today. And in that approach, what, what we are promoting, uh, personally, I'm doing it and my company, ThriveDX, and we see it also other organizations and are doing, are thinking out of the box, thinking of these uh, bootcamp approach of taking people to a very intense learning experience uh, it can be three months, it can be six months. And by the way, we've been doing this in Singapore, uh, including with financial institutions. And more and more organizations understand that they need to start generating their own talents. It can either be by taking um, people from their organization, from within the organization. It can be IT people or other type of people that actually want to convert or to move to, to reskill themselves into cybersecurity and reskill them or taking people from different backgrounds, not necessarily people that work in cybersecurity, but work in a, but focus on an accelerated way to teach them the right cybersecurity skills. I think that if we will try to solve our cybersecurity problems just based on the talent pool that exists today, and, and just based on people that are coming out of um, universities after years of academic experience, we'll just, we will never be able to cover the gap. And we need to take a proactive approach here and we need to start opening our gates to new diverse talent and to be open to, um, to take people with um, bootcamp experience or even to retrain our people with, with bootcamps and not necessarily wait for a five years experience before we start working. Like, like we're doing unit A200. We, we, as I said, we have to take them straight out of high school. They are 18 year olds, they don't have a degree but they are still working in my, one of the most challenging environments in the world. So you make me feel that I'm too old for that and to try to apply <laughs> even think to a job in that direction. But uh, looking at the broader view, not only from a talent point of view, you mentioned before uh, the cyber friction between Israel and Iran, uh, but there is another friction that I want to look at now is the friction between the United States and the People's Republic of China. Uh, if uh, this increase in friction is going to lead to a bifurcation of a digital system and uh, sooner than later, country will have to make a choice in which part of the cyber wall they have to choose to be in win. In your opinion, where that would leave Israel? So it's, it's not new to Israel. Israel has been always, always has been 
you know, in the middle of, of different conflicts. In the past, it could be United States and, and the Soviet Union back then, um, where Israel was a more ally of the United States, but in a region that most of the countries around Israel were allies of the Soviet Union back then. Now, um, and it, it's even today, you see conflicts of Israel with one of, you know, some of its neighbors, let's say Syria, for example. So there is a very dominant Russian presence in Syria. Um, and, and, and Israel is, um, you know, is trying to, to keep the good relationship with, with uh, Russia in that case, um, but still is a, is a, I would say, a stronger ally of the United States in different conflicts and situation. And even the, right now, the war in Ukraine is affecting, you know, affecting Israel. So I think Israel is trying in these cases to stay as neutral as possible, mainly because it's small and, and vulnerable and needs its, um, its global allies. And um, I think, and this is an estimation, that in a situation where West versus East or kind of like Russia, sorry, China versus United States approach, I think in that case, Israel will be more in the, um, uh, I would say, in the Western group than on the Eastern group, just because of um, the dependency of Israel and the Israeli market um, in, in the United States. United States is uh, by far the most significant partner of Israel in uh, both military and civilian uh, purposes. Again, I'm not a politician and I'm not a military expert at this point. So I cannot, you know, I cannot um, foresee the, the future exactly, but this is my, my estimation. But you just mentioned foreseeing future, so you just helped me to rope in the, the other question. But as mentioned, I just criticized the notion of cyber Armageddon, and I then ended up talking about the cyber iron curtain. So that's something that we will see in the future. Unfortunately, in this uncertain time uh, when uh, the global security architecture is changing uh, really fast, uh, is transitioning uh, from point A, and we really have no idea where point B uh, is going to lead us, um, I'm going to ask a very difficult question that uh, in your opinion is not tomorrow, is not in two years, in the next coming 30 years, what it will be the future of cyber intelligence? So I think in general, as I said before as well, first cyber security and cyber intelligence will become something that is much more essential and common first than, than what we see today. If, if today we think it's common, but it's still there is, um, there is some kind of a mystery around that. You know, people think about us. Actually, I, I participated in a conference um, in the United States, in Atlanta, uh, just a few weeks ago, that the topic of the conference was demystifying cybersecurity. And I think that still people see this as this uh, mysterious thing. And I think that with time, first, it will become common. Common as um, we think about technology today. With technology, you have to you have, to have um, cybersecurity and cyber intelligence practices. So that's in general, it becomes something that is much more available to the market, available to people, accessible to people. And more people will also choose it as a career path, which right now it's, it's a bit more challenging. Now, specifically from a technological point of view, well, it's hard for me to, to estimate exactly, but, but we see that the, the, the involvement of AI um, more and more in everything and including in cybersecurity and cyber intelligence, meaning that um, attacks and defense that is being created by a machine and not necessarily by, uh, by a person. So not necessarily defining rules to the system, but allowing the system to learn 
um, and create its own rules and create its own defense mechanisms and code itself. And I think that we'll see much more um, attacks that are being initiated by machines and um, defense mechanisms that are being created by machines and learning machines and learning processes. And, and we see it in general in many fields, not just in cybersecurity, but in cybersecurity, we can find um, weapons that are being created by machines or defense mechanisms that are being created by machines. So I think that one thing that will become much more significant is that this field will have a strong AI uh, presence. Having said that, I think we'll also see um, the growing role of the human factor in um, cyber breaches and in cyber cases. So while the machines will become more and more sophisticated, what you see is that the weakest link um, is becoming the, the human vulnerability. And we see it also today where attackers are taking advantage of, uh, while the systems are sophisticated and hackers maybe can break the system or find, um, you know, find a way to, to break into the system, then it's sometimes easier to make a person to open the door for you or to make a person to give you the key. And, um, and it's, you know, it's, it, if you want to get into the most sophisticated safe in the world, but if you have next to you the person that has the code and the key, and you can actually get the code and the key from the person, it's easier. Um, so I think that we'll also see this, that humans will become, or already, already are, but will become the weakest link in this, um, in this cybersecurity situation. Oh, thank you very much, Roy. I mean, saving that, uh, you just uh, make me remember Kevin Mitnich that he was a very famous uh, American hacker. I think he also ended up in prison for his hacking skill. And being a good coder was an important part, but he was really a good social engineer. So as yes. you said, he was able to make people tell him the password without have to brute force the system. I mean, we, mm -hmm. we can go on talking about this for hours, but unfortunately our time arrived at the end. And Roy, really, thank you very much for joining us today. Listening to your insight has been extremely informative. And I just want to close this episode to plug in the following podcast that is going to talk about the evolution of cybersecurity, but pivoting from Israel to Europe and looking at the, this new role of cyber mercenary. So stay tuned and enjoy a great day.